0: we're recording now um this is the podcast um we don't do we have a title no
1: i think we can come to
0: yeah we can i feel like you know we could be as punk rock as we can about this because we're talking about the art market um and it's kind of the like you know
2: hi this is amina
0: this is Dylan,
2: and my name's Ellie Schreier,
0: and this is our art market podcast where we're talking about tomatoes. You know, we're talking about the art market, and readings for this class period, and how how the uh, the art market impacts our own lives. But I also like how a lot of the readings—they're not as like specifically wordy as some of the other things, or academically wordy to the point where you have no idea what they're talking about. There is one piece, and we can talk about it when we get there. Like the first—the first one for me, Thomas Selig—he's a little bit, you know, you know the fr- he has a phrase: invasive uh, stringency of an omnipresent omnipresent marketing conception. I have no idea what that means. I like, you know, I like some of the points in this piece, but it's like... um, Well,
1: let's talk about that for a second. Why do you think that he chose to say it in that way?
0: Well, I don't know if I... Well, I mean, the piece in general is kind of talking about uh, Andreas Gerke's like photographic images and the creation of the image of the commodity and Mm. art as kind of like a commodified image. But I think, but like... The way he he writes in kind of a particularly like art school way of writing that I think you hear a lot in like art criticism, where it's trying to speak in this very very academic way, in a way that is not natural, but kind of elevates art into kind of, or elevates um, contemporary art into kind of a space where it's non-accessible and kind of but also like raises its value as a commodity. Because it must be very good if we're speaking about it as this very, very complex thing. I think it's interesting that he's using that language.
2: I, I feel like that that analogy also kind of relates to like what is... Um... What is brought up in a lot of these pieces of um, like the idea that like the price makes the art like to a certain extent and kind of like, or not necessarily the price, but just kind of like exposure and like certain um, exhibitions, certain biennoles, art art market fairs, like various ways that you can be connected to like big names that like just give you like kind of social capital in a way.
0: Have any of you been to an art fair? Because I haven't. They seem terrifying, uh, Eloise. You said you're you're nodding. Tell me tell me what an art fair is like. An art fair that you've been to, like sensorily, like the experience of going to it as compared to like going to MoMA.
1: I mean, I've been both in the role as a spectator and an artist at art fairs. I used to work with like an artist collective in high school, and I would run and manage booths. And I'm from San Francisco, so there was there's a lot of different types of art fairs. I've never been to the Biennale, and I thought that that work that we looked at that discussed kind of how originally in its conception it had such a strong focus on selling the art and kind of having this capitalist spine that held everything together. But then once they removed that and became so vehemently anti that aspect, the whole thing is commodified by the outside viewer. So the discussion of how for the 2009 show when all of the pieces from England's showing were sold before it even opened, just because it had the Biennale's name mm-hmm. attached to it. I thought it was really interesting. And we're all artists ourselves. And I think that we have a unique vantage point to discuss kind of the market and to discuss art right now. But I thought that the Fred Wilson piece, Mining the Museum and Me, was a really good entry point into that discussion because The way that money kind of plays into how art is perceived once it leaves the hands of the creator was something that I was thinking about a lot throughout each of these pieces that we read. And I wanted to hear your guys' perspectives on that act of selling and kind of how the piece leaving the hands of the creator changes the work for its meaning.
2: As like a quick um, thing, the first thing that I thought of when I read the Fred Wilson was how... This kind of topic is something that came up, I believe, after our Rose B. Simpson visit. Mm -hmm. Uh, She, like, went into kind of this experience of selling a piece and, like, this person, like, obviously, like, didn't get it. And then suddenly they did later. Um, But it's, I I think it was interesting to explore here when people just don't get it. Um, And especially this, like, disconnect between the artist and the art market. Like, who are these people who are getting into the art market? Like, what is, (laughs) what is their deal? Um, Or like what kinds of people like are compelled to specifically get into the art market because um, from these, um, from eating like these pieces, I can't tell if it tends to be like, you know, the type of thing that people go into because they really love art and like they make art themselves or if there's like just some kind of other pipeline or if there's something like, a tons of things.
0: I, I think it's interesting to choose me to be one of the people to talk about the art market, because I, I'm, <laughs> I'm i a filmmaker, and I, you know, I don't necessarily, um, I don't plan on, like, becoming somebody who's going to focus on um, this kind of art market, and even if I did, you know, like, there's kind of the complication of, like, how do you sell, like, a video piece, um, and I think they talk about that, and one piece <laughs> talks about the that and the idea of purity, like, we're selling this That makes it pure because it isn't even a thing. But partially why I'm Mm -hmm. attracted to film is because it's distributed in this different way than um, something like uh, uh, something that would be in the Venice Biennale or Venice Mm Biennale. And I think because film is kind of made to be shown to a large number of people. Fred Wilson's experience in um, Mining the Museum and Me. I I think that like, you know, it's something nightmarish because he's talking about all these terrible aspects of working in the art world and like, you know, how he's selling things to people who don't understand it, but he never like ever considers like not doing that or not being in that Mm -hmm. art market. Like it's the idea of the art market as this all encompassing thing that is like, there's no other way to be an artist except through this.
1: Well, I mean, Can you see a different way to be an artist?
0: Well, I am. I mean, you you could look at what film is doing, but now I don't think there's anything as like financially, there's no like the same financial path. But I think like being an artist is not necessarily connected to like making all of your money from this one thing. Or like finding different ways or inventing new ways of like distributing your art that are not through selling it to individual people many of whom don't e- even understand it or appreciate it and are only buying it as like decoration there's no like discussion of like what a possible thing like that would look like
2: i guess there's also uh wait well, i guess like on the topic of like different ways at least in this system making money by commission or like freelancing and that type of thing i feel like that's a, like what a lot of um photographers i know tend to do amina is a photographer. Um, so they kind of like book clients and it's more of like a case by case sort of thing. I think we might
1: be getting ahead of ourselves. And I think it might be more beneficial instead of saying automatically what this discussion brings to mind for me is one of the, I'm focusing a lot of my independent work as kind of a back background for what I'm about to say. Independent work for Viz right now, I'm doing kind of self portraits that interrogate why I make art that needs to be viewed. But in the same way that when a chef is cooking something, it's meant to be digestible. Paintings are made and created so that you can digest the meaning. And I'm saying paintings, but that's an interchangeable Mad Lib style sentence. You can put anything in there from the art world. They're, they're made to disseminate a meaning. And I'm automatically brought back to one of the other podcasts that we talked about where it was the medium is the message. Um, I thought that that was a really poignant point that comes into play in our conversation a lot. But I think one of the things that we should acknowledge about why the art market is so convoluted and why people like Fred Wilson are making art to be, you know, put into this art market and yet still critiquing it. And how do you get out of that? How do you not play that game when that game is how you're successful in your pursuit and your passion? And yes, you could say, why not make art? why make it in a different way but that kind of echoes knockland's essay why are there no great female artists where even asking that question you're you've already lost if your aim is to understand or dismantle a system and figure out why something has been happening you cannot be a part of that system from the conception to even get into the conversation and have a seat at the table and i think that her point of you can't use the word great. There have been talented, famous, amazing, influential female artists. And I would also mention queer, non-binary, other minority aspect artists throughout history. But even if you're bringing up the fact that you're considering or conceiving of the idea of great, you have to reconcile with the fact that that's coming from a framework that has been steeped in exclusion. And I think it's somewhat of the same thing with this kind of conversation with kind of this Sophie's choice of the artist. Do I pursue my passion in a way that is a profession or do I keep it as a passion and kind of do what you're talking about Amina, which is have something else that funds my passion or do I kind of, I don't know, the word sellout is coming to mind, but I don't know if I agree with that term in that place.
0: I don't think, well, I mean, the sellout, the the term sellout to me is not a useful word because it means something different to different people. But I think like what is more productive is thinking about, you know, maybe even in like more of a Marxist sense, like thinking about like, how are we commodifying these things? Because I think, you know, if you look at mass media versus how like art, the art market works in the contemporary sense. You have the resale value, and then you have the um, inherent value of its use. And when you are an artist who is in the business of creating a object that is to be sold, I think it's interesting. You can kind of see through these readings, maybe through a, like a framework like that, seeing how the object has been used at different, even in different times. Why people are buying things. And like, what, what is the actual value of the artwork? And I think that is like, to me, a constructive question to ask that gives us like an understanding of what the art market even is. Like, why are people buying these things? Um, and especially nowadays, it does, you know, it doesn't seem that they're buying the artwork to have it in a, a, a aspect that is in tandem with why it was created the creation of the art seems completely, and the artist seems completely separated from the actual object.
2: In a, in a lot of ways, I get the sense that, um, like, these people operate in, I'm thinking specifically of the piece on, like, art auctions, and, um, like, this guy that was described, who was kind of like, oh, like, I know that this piece is, like, it's not going to be appreciated as much, it's, like, significant for this and this reason, um, there's kind of, the lack of, like, consideration for, like, like what was this piece's use? Who was, like, the person who made this? And instead, it's, um I guess, like, trying to fit it into, like, a sort of art historical framework. This is something that started this or, like, shaped this. And, like, this is why it's significant or this is why it's, like, underappreciated. And it seems to be this kind of... Um, I don't know, this, this strange game of like who has the most discerning eye or like discerning taste.
0: Yeah, he's buying it for these like personal reasons. And I, but I think, you know, that to me, that's interesting. Like that's, you know, he's an artist of his own because he's creating this, like the art it takes on a totally different meaning for him. But then that is like the meaning of the art at that moment and that's kind of the challenge of what the art market is because it transforms the object before our eyes. I've always taken the approach of not caring once I've given it away. When I when like it it when I'm done with something, you know, I send it to a festival or something and try to get it in there. And once I've done that, I've always made the decision that I can't like you know, it can't be an active part of my life anymore. It is because there's nothing I can do about it. And it's no longer mine. I don't make it in such a way that it's completely disastrous for me. If somebody else has a different interpretation, actually, I really love it when people have different interpretations of it because I feel like it's not, you know, I, I think.
1: I would disagree with that. And that just might be the way that I do my practice, but. I mean, a lot of my work is inherently personal. And I take issue with the viewer or the connoisseur or the critic evaluating the work based on their own premise if they're not going to consider the role of the artist. I mean, a lot of my work is deeply personal and self-involved. And I'll, I'll ask for a separation of self-involved from being selfish and self-involved being more of, I do self-portraiture from a unique vantage point. <laughs> So, like, collections of objects that I think are representative of me at a point in time. But I think that, for me at least, I have a very difficult time with relinquishing a piece of mind, knowing where it's coming from, knowing why I'm doing it, knowing why and how this piece arrived from my thoughts, my experiences, my life and how this kind of chunk of myself is being given away and having somebody almost have the audacity to think that they can take the piece itself from the life that's being you know breathed into it i kind of think of my own paintings as a vein almost and the blood that's pumping through them that kind of keeps them together is the fact that they are extensions of my own thought process. Without that thought, they wouldn't have existed in the first place. And I think that this might be a radical view, but you can never consider a piece of art without the artist. So if you look at Olmec art, for example, where no one knows anything about it and even understanding Olmec culture because it's so lost and gone at this point in time, I still have such a hard time disseminating and understanding a piece or defining it or reading it even in an iconographical way, because I don't know who the artist is and I can't even begin to figure, consider or empathize or sympathize with the perspective that the person had when they were in the act
0: of the creation. I think there's a beauty in like not knowing knowing either. I think there's a certain amount, like the Chartres Cathedral in France, no one knows who made it. There's no architect attached to it, I think. If I'm correct on which cathedral, but there's a lot of cathedrals where we don't know the architect, but it's this beautiful whole piece. Um, and I, you know, like I'm making films currently that are using my body in a very like visceral way, um, that are very personal. But I also understand that you know history exists. Uh, you know, even if I wanted to like write a very detailed explanation of like what's involved in it. I, you know, you have to understand you're going to die eventually. And the art will outlive you on mm-hmm. some level. And when you release it in that way, it becomes a separate person. It's like a child. It goes off and does its own thing. And the art market does part of that. But like any on like, kind of wait, art.
2: On, um, on that note that you went on, and also because I guess I didn't get to talk about my practice but um I think all artists fall on like a spectrum of like like how much they like to separate the art from the artist and like how much the artist is involved in that kind of thing and um and like your, your art can I think be very personal but you can also be fine with like relinquishing it because I guess like there's always a reason why we like choose to make particular art um and I was also thinking of that question which um I guess, I don't, know, I don't know how shallow this would make me sound. I also don't really have an experience of like really selling pieces, except like one painting I did that was sold to like, I sold it to like um, one of my high school teachers. It was like, oh, like it's a cool painting. <laughs> and then I was just like, oh, okay, cool. And I think like on that level, Because I think I always kind of when it comes to like selling art, like physical art, I get kind of crushed by this sense of like, this is like an object that is like taking up space in my home. And I guess I also have like an anxiety around like moving because I've had to like move so many times and I just hate packing and storing things and that kind of thing. So I get like, I I don't really like to own objects in a sense so like in some way I kind of like relinquishing physical things because it's like well at least somebody will like frame it up and like put it up in their house and it'll have like a nice space and I'll just have it sitting like somewhere random like in my room or I'll just keep like moving it around Um, yeah this is the part where I think I sound shallow but I don't I don't know if I would say that I consider my art like a part of me or anything but I do think of it as um i I do think of like my work as reflecting um just the the experience of me like moving around in the world and like experimenting and like trying things out and like like pushing and prodding things and like seeing how like stuff turns out like but um and to move on to like the last point that you made dylan um in kind of like thinking about like art have it like kind of like the objects you make and like the art that you make digital or physical like falling into like a historical continuum what i enjoy about like kind of digital crate digging and that sort of thing is like finding something that's a relic or like something that's left over of like someone who like just like recorded something for fun with their friend or just oh like let's just like record an album together or like let's like do this fun thing and then like somehow it ended up on the tape somewhere or like Mm -hmm. but like overall like it never had any like like huge significance Mm -hmm. but the significance that lies in it is like you know like people in 2020 who just like crate digging for really obscure weird stuff I guess like in the end I don't necessarily care if whatever I do ends up like huge rounds around like any kind of art world but just that like it'll exist and maybe someone in like the distant future will find it and be like oh like this is quirky
0: (laughs) if you look at cave paintings Mm -hmm. uh like you know the cave paintings in france i forget the name of it but there's this mastery
2: Mm -hmm.
0: of like no animal like anatomy because these People like know more about like you know a buffalo than we ever will, because their whole life is spent on that, and we have no idea like you know the names of these people. We don't know what their lives were like. We don't know if they were bipolar. We don't know <laughs> what antidepressants they were on. But we we have this you know direct connection with them through that the mo the frozen moment of that artwork. And I think that is like you know, one of the things that art can do. The inherent value of an artwork is that ability to transmit a meaning directly from, you know, visually, you know, not even through necessarily words, but like the feeling of an image mm-hmm. in connecting one human being to another through time and space. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about it. And that can happen with or without, you know, the I would argue um, the, the biographical interpretation from you know an artist, um, and that's what I'm interested in. I, I try to avoid, you know, ever saying directly what a work means to me, because I feel like I'm going to mess it up. The translation between the visual and like the the form of it, I put it in, trying to put it into words to me is such a deep, you know difficulty for me I'm just like I'll let a critic do it if a critic finds it and can tell me what it means that would be great
2: (laughs) yeah I guess like whenever I think of that it's like there's a reason why I'm a visual artist and not a writer or something like that but it's interesting when um people are both or when they I guess I guess it depends on like generally like what else you like to do Mm -hmm. um other than art and then how that plays into like how you talk about it or how you think about it.
1: One of the things I think that's interesting that you're saying, Amina, is you're a visual artist, you're not a writer. And yet, instantly I'm called back to Kate Linker's Love for Sale, The Words and Pictures of Barbara Kruger, where her art Mm. is completely concentric to creative catchisms. And creative writing, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a discussion of, oh, I want a critic to be able to interpret my work for me. There's the discussion of, on my end, no, I don't. And also, the critic isn't right, which is my firm belief. I'm interested in Amina's point, and I think that Kate Linker's Love for Sale, the words and pictures of Barbara Kruger, is an interesting article to bring into the mix because when I was reading it kind of just she's talking about Kruger's 1987 work where there's a placard that says I shop therefore I am such a small statement such a vast lexicon of meanings that you could infer Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and
1: yet at the same time the meaning is directly tied to its contemporaries and so that kind of issue of what does a critic see, where does the critic fit in for the artist, Barbara Kruger, I've always been kind of captivated by her work because there's such an intentional power structure and relationship there, where there's a dictation of what the meaning is, but there's also still some room for guided interpretation. It's never going to be free. It's never going to be free association. It's going to be guided, and it's going to be guided by that language, which is easily interpretable by those that are not visual artists. I teach a class on Mondays for 10-year-old boys with social anxiety where we examine comic art. And also, because I've brought up Barbara Kruger with them, they immediately read it as the supreme font.
2: I that, that aspect
1: <laughs> of just the general market. Changed the piece, you know? How does that adoption of her specific style, and I would say not adoption, but rather theft, how does that completely change in a viewer, in a critic, in a connoisseur's mind, what is going on within the borders of a piece? I mean, for this specific, I shop, therefore I am, works beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a myself. However, for a lot of others how does that kind of rival phenomena that is not within the same context but is also widely distributed alter the meaning and alter its understanding
0: i have a question that i think has to deal with a lot of the a lot of the pieces because a lot of what we're reading is about our audience mm-hmm. or a audience and like what is actually the audience looking like do you think when you imagine your audience, do, they, do you think of them as smarter than you or dumber than you or equal in edu- uh, intelligence to you?
1: That's an interesting question. I've been thinking about that a lot, and it's not necessarily a question of why or who I think the audience is. It's more of a question of my own distrust of other people and their ability to try and understand or empathize and sympathize. And I think that that goes with a lot of these artists like Rose B. Simpson was talking about how she said this is what a piece is about and the person who owned it said back to the artist who created it. No, it's not, you know, and that unwillingness on the aspect of the viewer to take a piece at face value, not at face value, that's the wrong word because there's a physical object here and then there's a metaphysical meaning that's attached to it by the person that made it so in my kind of spiritual belief, the meaning's embedded in the medium. You've created it, that intention, that care, that manifestation has gone into the creation of the work. And yes, obviously the way that someone's going to interpret that is going to completely change and alter the work later on. And it's going to, as you said, Dylan, live past the artist who made it. I don't ever picture my audience as a specific populace. It's just kind of the way that I talk to people, the way that I feel that I am interpreted and read in classes, in my jobs, in my life. How have I been kind of, how have I learned the behaviors of the world and how they're going to respond to me, regardless of if it's an art piece or not? And that is... I've sat in classes for years and years and years where there's somebody who doesn't necessarily know exactly what they're talking about that will take up the whole room. And I will have something that I really want to say, but I will not be able to because I'm worried, because I don't quite have the perfect wording, or because mayhaps I'm overlooked. We talk about this a lot. I'm, I'm an art history major in a VIZ certificate. We talk about this a lot in art history, like what the audience of the piece is. And I've always kind of chuckled at that question because I don't think that any artist is intending a piece for a specific audience. Kind of like what you were saying, Amina, like you just create work and you put it out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're not the oh, I want 17 white kids that like to skate and watch like this specific TV show and like four of their moms and six random guys from Texas as my audience. Like no one's figuring who they want to see the pieces from the get-go. It's more of a where will they be received and you can dictate that if your piece gets accepted into different like pavilions or the biennale, you'll know what the audience is going to be then. But
0: mm-hmm. but I think there is I would say there I think there is like a when you're you're having an expectation mm-hmm. of how is my art going to be interpreted by critics or by whatever audience might receive it i think there is like if you're talking to me about art and talking to it a 10 year old with like anxiety you you might use different language to speak mm-hmm. about it but I always like, try to come with the expectation when I'm making art that whoever is gonna watch it is about as intelligent as me, if not more. And through that, when I'm imbuing a meaning into the piece, I also want the room there for a conversation with someone else about the art mm-hmm. and about what it might mean to them. Because so many times, like when I'm in my screenwriting class, there's a specific moment of ambiguity and strangeness Mm-hmm. And I have a meaning and then I hear somebody else talk about it and they brought to it like a meaning about it. It's a scene where a woman singing a folk song and then we break the fourth wall and you see that the, 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 the whole thing's being filmed mm-hmm. and somebody brought to it like, Oh, to me, it was about um, narratives of women in like culture and how through one different, you know, quote unquote song, a woman is, interpreted as one position of power and then another she's uh, can be interpreted as having a different totally different position and the power that has i did not think of that at all but i'm like that is a valid meaning to me even though that you know was not put into the piece it's there um because you know i'm not the only one creating the piece to me the piece is yeah, also being like- created but in the mind of the viewer
2: well, well, on one hand, like, I kind of just create things, and then I consider it, like, like, throwing them into the void, and then, like, seeing, like, who catches it, but I guess there's also, like, like, cases where, like, I make something, and, like, I know that it's this is going to be shown to, like, this art class, and, like, this professor, and stuff, and I, I usually tend to assume, for better or for worse, that, like, uh, everyone else will have a better, like, lexicon than me to, like, interpret whatever I'm doing but I also really like learning from it and kind of getting the kind of like finding out whether I'm like unconsciously like maybe Mm. um, continuing something is this something that's like common to explore for people who are like me like like throughout history or like when else did like people do something like this and like what else lies behind the specific like technique or subject matter or kind of like topic or philosophy that's trying to be explored and here it's a really good point i think
1: another thing that like what you just said brought to mind for me amina is like a lot of my work is personal in nature and my process is more like a meditative think tank almost but i also know sometimes when i'm making work that there are signals and symbols in there that will only be understood by people who have shared my same experience. Read that experience, female, read that experience, trauma, read that experience, however you may deem it. I also know, and this is part of my kind of current fascination and critique of the omnipresent amorphous viewer, is that mm-hmm. there's only going to be specific people. That are able to read the work in full. Mm-hmm. Everyone who is not necessarily me, and including me as the artist, because I can't interpret it outside of being the artist, is never fully going to be under, never fully going to be able to understand the work at all. You know, Dylan might look at my work and completely miss aspects of the feminine experience because he's never had the feminine experience, you know? He's never been in that body. And other people might completely just not even read something as a symbol because it's never played into their lives. Whereas if it has, it's going to be the first thing that they see. And I think that I've, I've had to adopt kind of, I know people say like Princeton goggles. I don't know if you guys have <laughs> heard that phrase, um, but I've kind of had to adapt like my own like Eloise goggles where it's like, I know when I'm looking at this piece of art, I'm automatically gonna read the things that apply to me. How else can I change this? Like how can I alter just the way that I view the world so that I can try and be unbiased, even though I am as a person with my own experiences and my own personality and language and creation biased inherently. Like the linker piece on Kruger, the love for sale had an interesting point for that. Kruger does not contest this instead, her work is a comment on the process and exposition of the fact that there are a few alternatives to the markets relentless appropriations. And I don't know, when I read that, the relentless appropriations, I thought was just so poignant because it's tireless. A work's going to live and outlive any creator that makes it. And you look at these stat. we like, I'm looking at statues right now from the Olmec where no one knows anything about the culture. The only artifacts that still exist are artifacts from art. And people are still tirelessly trying to attribute new meanings to it and read it in different ways and not trying to, they are reading it in different ways. But the veracity of those claims does not falter in comparison to the number of times that it's been cited or reworked or re-understood. And Kruger in herself and Linker in her writing and interpretation were very spot on with kind of that catchism of both art and the market as a tool and a cog in art's appreciation
0: and understanding. I just noticed yeah, something in the um, Mark Spiegler piece mm-hmm. that I wanted to maybe point to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the museum quality leftovers, the, the, the kind of the oh. difference between the phrase masterpiece mm-hmm. and the phrase museum quality. Mm-hmm. That I think is somewhat interesting because you are already brought up the idea of a, a great work of art, uh, Eloise. Something
2: that also... um oh, wait, something that intrigued me about like the wording in there and that I guess like I kind of immediately noted in that piece is um this kind of like like how do you refer to something as like a museum quality? I guess like how do you refer to like an artwork's like so that you can sell it and like how that influences or, like how that's like changed over time and I guess like one thing that was um going through my head as I read all of this is um has art always been like this like how like has there always been some kind of like art market on like one hand and like how have like artists had to like adapt to it and on the other hand it's a lot of kind of like critique of things like critique of the market critique of capitalism we know what we're against but what can we be for so to start our seminar off I would like to pose a question, do you see your development of your practice occurring more within or outside of the market? Have you thought about where it occurs before? Does it develop in different ways at the same time or does it heavily lean towards one?
0: When you sell a work of art on the art market, it inevitably becomes a commodity. You're, you're, you as an artist, if you're selling in the art market, in the capitalist sense, you're creating a commodity. And the value of that is in its exchange value, in a Marxist sense. The only value of it is what you can pay for it, or uh, what it is worth other things, or what it is worth in money. Um, How do you deal with this kind of issue in entering the art market, where your idea of the meaning of the artwork gets changed and reduced into kind of a capitalist exchange?
1: I think the question that I'm the most interested in is how much weight do you attribute to the market in the creations of your work? I know for myself, I don't necessarily even consider it until I'm in conversations like this one where I'm talking about it directly. But if I analyze retrospectively some of the pieces that I've made or some of the processes that I've done, it's clear that it's something that I consider. And I'm wondering if any of you guys consciously or unconsciously consider or factor in the market and the art market when you're creating your own works or evaluating other people's.